0: Hello again and welcome to Wrestling Memories on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. You can hear Wrestling Memories not only on the FM dial, but you can hear us streaming worldwide at RadioNorthland.org. And you can pick up that app from TuneIn. Yeah, we're on TuneIn. Wrestling Memories streaming right now live. And if you missed us live and in the moment, you can go back to our archives, which are available at our website page, RadioNorthland.org. We have over six mem- years of Wrestling Memories, and we're heading towards uh, Season Lucky 7 in the uh, latter part of the month of June. And we've got plenty of stuff uh, in the can and loaded up and ready to go And this week I welcome back the Grizzled Vet, Mr. Mike McCurdy And Mike down there deep in the heart of Texas in his mobile studio is ready to go And and Mike, you have a great guest uh, that you booked once again uh, The Grizzled Vet uh, comes through in the clutch for wrestling Memories
1: Man, um, it's good to be back again, you know, I've missed the last few weeks uh, Real quick though, I just want to give a little shout out here um, by the time we ever hear this, I'm, um just want to give a shout-out. Dallas Championship Wrestling, I had a chance to go to their show last night. Amazing card, amazing talent. Anybody listening, <clears throat> if you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, go check out DCW Wrestling. I was highly impressed. Some great guys on there, and it was a great show. I really enjoyed myself. They've invited me back again, so I just wanted to give them their uh, props on that one.
0: Yeah, you were sending me some messages the uh, during the, the show and talking about who was who was at the event, and one of the guys that popped out that you mentioned that you were very kind of excited and just didn't expect was a guy who's really kind of been uh, making some news in the last year, year and a half when he held the NWA title. We're talking about the veteran Tim Storm, so that was kind of a pleasant surprise for you, wasn't it?
1: It was good to see Tim. In fact, I had talked with him, and uh, I've got him booked as a uh, upcoming guest for Wrestling Memories. Just got a get a date and time locked in. And so we're going to have him on as a guest and I'm sure all our listeners are going to enjoy that one as well.
0: Oh yes, and they're going to enjoy this one as well. We got to focus on the guest that you lined up. He's a returning, uh, he's a returning guest to Wrestling Memories. He was on with uh, myself and George Shire about a year and a half ago. Uh, he's a wealth of knowledge, and he's going to be here to help us pay tribute to uh, some of the legends that we have lost here recently. Uh, we're talking about the living legend Bruno Sammartino, number one Paul Jones, and of course Luscious Johnny Valiant and uh, Mike. I guess it's from one mic to another. We got a grizzled vet to a doctor. Let me uh, have you introduce your friend and also a friend to Wrestling Memories.
1: Um, it's my pleasure to introduce this man. He's a good friend of mine. And as you said, he is on here tonight. We're gonna remember, you know, Bruno San Martino as well. Talk a little bit about Paul Jones and Johnny Valley and some of the others we lost recently. But our guest today is none other than world renowned wrestling photographer, and I can say that honestly, Dr. Mike Leno. Mike, thanks for joining us today.
2: Hey everybody, I've uh, covered the biz primarily for the wrestling newsstand magazines, all of them, primarily Japan, though, since 1966. And um, uh, this was a horrendous couple of weeks since the passing of Johnny Valiant going back to his hometown in Pittsburgh, where he actually started for Bruno's offshoot, TriWF promotion that Vince McMahon Sr. would send all the guys to. So he started there as John L. Sullivan. Uh, but Bruno San Martino's passing, you know really required a lot more. I'm urging people to go check out Thursday's New York Times, but he he deserved a full page as opposed to like a, a third of the page or a quarter of the page. He did so much in that area. and uh, you know since he first came into Los Angeles uh, December of seventy one, uh, we had stayed friends ever since, and he basically would call me once a month towards the end of the month asking about buy rates. TV ratings. He wanted to know what was going on with New Japan and stay fresh and on top of it all. And he actually read the Wrestling Observer uh, quite a bit.
0: So he stayed quite sharp uh, when it came to, uh, you know, the, the events of the day, even after he retired. I know, uh, you know, Bruno had uh, made a lot of news in the 90s, early 90s, uh, with his uh, feud with 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 Vincent, uh, Vince McMahon uh, Jr., uh, you know, about the various things, including the steroid epidemic. But he was still very much uh, a guy that paid attention inside. Then, again, uh, you from uh, your conversations with with Bruno through the years and through the more recent years.
2: Yeah, that that was kind of a long time in coming. The feud stemmed from when Bruno wanted to help his son David out and get him booked with the then WWF, you know, which uh, was birthed from the TriWF of Vince Senior. And basically, he felt that he was uh, he had fully retired. He he didn't want to return to the ring at all. His body was aching, but he was sort of forced to to get David on television. One of the caveats was that Bruno had to come back and do commentary and, and wrestle a lot in arenas. So if you look at some of those uh, around the 84, 85 uh, TV tapings, stuff that is happening at the Boston Garden, the Philly Spectrum, the Cap Center, etc., Bruno was on a lot of those cards. And, uh, and then when the, the Ring Boys scandal, the steroid thing happened, whatever year, 92, 93, then it was uh, it just sort of escalated things. And um, But Yeah, I'd rather talk about you know the positives of Bruno. There was there would be no WWE today without everything that Bruno contributed. I mean that promotion was ridden on his back uh, when Buddy Rogers was not working out as a champion in '63, which was why the title strap had to change to Bruno, who uh, had already been blackballed by the business except for Toronto. So he was begged to come back down from Toronto to. Sort of save things and save things he did a record number of Madison Square Garden sellouts and all of those other venues. And when they weren't working out with the next champion and Pedro Morales, the third try to be a champ, December tenth, of seventy-three, and I was there shooting ringside at Madison Square Garden. They put the strap back on Bruno using the uh, intermediary Stan the Man Stasiak, who was no stranger to Dallas and all things Texas, but particularly Dallas. So uh, you know Bruno was their go-to guy. Two. Of the longest legit title reigns, um, it was huge. And then when he asked for the strap to be taken off, that's why he lost to Koloff. His body was aching. He was just burned out on eight, nine days a week of wrestling, doing TVs and all that. He then started coming. He came out to the West Coast. Of course, he won the L.A. 22-man battle royal. That was one of my primary home-based territories. And then he had a big, huge match at the Olympic Auditorium in L.A. with Killer Kowalski, who they had worked numerous times and were great friends from Tri-WF, and he worked at the Cow Palace quite a few times, but dating back to two, if not three, but two, I recall, title versus title. His title versus Ray Stevens' U.S. title, they sold out the Cow Palace. Bruno would have six-man matches at the Cow Palace teaming with Pepper Gomez and Rocky Johnson, and Rocky and Bruno verified to me that Rocky begged Bruno, this was in early 70, or around May 73, begged Bruno to take him, get him out of San Francisco, where he felt Roy Shire was uh, sort of a racist promoter, get him into uh, Vince Sr.'s promotion, which finally Rocky would do, but years later. But they remained great friends, and um, you know, Bruno accomplished so much during that, that year, year and a half, whatever it was, away. He went to Montreal, team with Ed Carpentier, won the the big Grand Prix World Tag Titles up there, defeating the original Hollywood Blondes. He worked for Dick the Bruiser, and of course, he and Bruiser, the super team, uh, were tag champions in Bruiser's W.W.A. promotion. He went to Atlanta, where he helped out Ann Gunkel battle the N.W.A. Uh, Long story there, but she had an outlaw promotion, and Bruno was a huge part of that, usually feuding with Ernie Ladd. And he went to Japan, of course, for Giant Baba, where he was always a huge draw. You know, he went all over the
0: place. And, 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 and he, he, also, he also worked, uh, sorry, Mike, uh, he also worked in, in St. Louis. He did some shots too with Much Nick, yeah,
2: Right, I forgot to say. He had about three, four dates in St. Louis. Uh, his opening one, I think he took the mask of uh, Dr. Big Bill Miller, uh, great hooker, shooter, wrestler. And the final one was, uh, I think it was an hour Broadway. They both won a fall. Harley raced the NWA championship, which is still fondly remembered in St. Louis. It was a huge match for the NWA title. But Bruno had fought for that, that title uh, prior to that, but that's a whole long story. I mean, the, the thing I want to get out as a positive about Bruno was, in the opinion of many of us, he was the most ethical guy in an often sleazy business. Just ethical, he transcended the business in so many ways beyond just wrestling. He was a good uh, human being, and uh, just had a heart of gold. And uh, you know, he always he would talk to whether he was talking to Arnold Schwarzenegger or some big celebrity. He would talk on the same level with the same respect. Uh, if it was just a fan at the matches or. You know, pretty much anybody. He he would lock into you. He would pay attention. He wouldn't be, you know, looking around for. Oh, gee, I need to be talking to somebody else. Uh, just I, words cannot do the guy justice. And there is, there will never be another Bruno because of all the things that he brought uh, to the table as a human being.
0: Now, were you kind of taken off off guard a little bit when you first met him of just how uh, kind and and very forward he was? I mean, considering that you mentioned that he could have done all the the big star, big league stuff. But when you first got a chance to to meet him, can you remember that and remember just what kind of a nature it was and how nice it was and kind of a refreshing take it was to have a guy of, of that stature, that larger than life figure that Bruno was to be able to be so down to earth?
2: I'd kind of heard he was that way, which was so unusual in the business. Uh, Often people are leery when they're wrestlers because they've been, you know, characteristically cheated often, so they always would give you a glazed look. You know, as wrestling's photographer, dentist, I treated a lot of guys for free in my office, including the fireball throwing Sheik and Sabu and Mick Foley and Abdullah Butcher, but. Guys that may not even know you—they—if uh, you do something or hand them a toothbrush or whatever—they often would give you a glazed look, like "What well, does this person want back from me?" But Bruno was not like that, and I think he helped uh, with other wrestlers, you know, get them to see. Not, the rest of the world isn't like the wrestling world, um, and uh, I mean, I just have so many fond memories, taking pictures, and then working out with uh, Schwarzenegger and and working out with. Uh, Oh, gosh, so many people, like at Gleason's Gym and other gyms in the New York area. Uh, just a lot of great, great, great memories. And uh, as I do the other two individuals that, that we sadly lost to Johnny Valiant and, and Paul Jones. Paul Jones. If you guys will allow me just quickly to say something about him. Oh, absolutely. He was kind of not the greatest manager, not the greatest talker. A lot of us wondered what are they putting him on for? But if you recall, as a wrestler, the late 60s, 70s, particularly in his Florida days, he had amazing matches. People don't believe me when I say it with Jack Briscoe, uh, whether it was for the Florida title or later uh, the NWA title. But he was a very credible wrestler and uh, with buddy colt you know he, he turned heel but uh, in the florida area but primarily was known as the baby face facing bobby shane again buddy colt and guys like that the funk brothers and stuff and he was a great wrestler he was a much better wrestler you know the stuff that i saw 71 72 73 then a manager later on in the the late 80s NWA, you know, on TBS.
0: Well, yes, see, see, Dr. Mike, that's where I, you know, kind of when I started watching, you know, I'm about 40, 42 years old. Uh, When I first started, my first taste of Paul Jones was uh, via the Turner show uh, on on 605 around 85, 86. So I I really didn't get a chance to see him in his Matt glory days. That came later with the advent of of YouTube and other video uh, capabilities. But But a lot
2: of that, the sad thing is a lot of that was never put on film. Uh, You know, a few people like Ruth Oman, the famous Florida photographer would have uh, on occasion would, would film it with eight millimeter or something, but a lot of that is missing. So, um, and the, and the fact that Paul like shrunk heightwise. There was a few other guys that I knew that lost like three inches when they got older, or in his case, the managerial days uh, when he just seemed to shrink. But he was a much taller guy, almost as tall as Jack Briscoe, in their heyday, say '72, and it was they were really kicking and doing four to five star matches, which. Again, people don't believe me when I say that, but, yep, Paul Jones was certainly capable of that and a very credible wrestler and a, a super nice guy. Mike uh, would remember at the Cauliflower Alley's, uh, when only when Briscoe came, but he brought the whole Florida contingent of Buddy Colt and Gordon Soley was there and, of course, Paul Jones. And although they were rivals, you know, in real life, obviously, they were great friends. And uh, Paul had learned an awful lot from Jack Briscoe and always put him over and was always very gracious um, which was different than the Johnny Valiant, the John L. Sullivan days with Bruno. They had a bit of a falling out. Uh, Bruno told me that Johnny had disappointed him a couple of times, you know, later on, so they weren't really on speaking terms. But uh, when John Valiant was created uh, around 7'3, to pair him as a, a very colorful tag team, The Valiant Brothers, with Captain Lou Albano, they were at their best, the three of them were great. They had uh, at least four sellout matches at Madison Square Garden. I was shooting at two of them: uh, Bruno and Chief J. Strongbow against the Valiants in the main event, and uh, they were just amazingly colorful. And uh, I think uh, John—I forget now his real name, real last name. His first name was John, but he really gelled. That was a great character for him. And uh, you know, his later, again, same thing. His later managerial days weren't. Couldn't compare to the Valiant Brothers, Steve's. when it was just two Valiants, not three, when it was two, Jimmy and John.
0: You think it just got to be too much with the, uh, when Jerry came in? You think I was just a little overkill? You think I kind of just diluted the, a little bit of the product yeah, and what they had?
2: Jimmy had a health issue and he couldn't wrestle, so they brought in their buddy from Chicago and in Indianapolis, Guy Stomper Guy Mitchell, and uh, he became the third, John and Jerry Valiant. Uh, but then, you know, Jerry, uh, a.k.a. Jim guy mitchell who was also rumored to be brother bobby heenan which was not true they were just great friends and had tagged and all that kind of stuff but he he was fine in his own way but it couldn't even touch the valiant brothers days you know when they actually went into a recording studio they were supposed to cut some kind of an album in 74 and it just didn't happen they i think lou had had a few too many and, uh, but they were in a recording studio, and it was kind of a big deal. You know, later on, uh, Debbie Harry and Andy Kaufman tried to help them uh, market themselves a little bit better in the 70s. And, uh, but, man, to see how colorful they were. Uh, and I was actually, their last day, when they wrapped up in their first incarnation for the tri in 75, I was there with them at that show at Madison Square Garden. And then we were on the same plane uh, where they started for Vern Gagne the next day or two, and their first match was a tag in the AWA, which you'll appreciate, against Pampiro Furpo and Joe LaDuke in Champaign, Illinois, and I shot them there. So I spent about four or five days with them nonstop, and they're just great, great guys, total characters. And uh, John Valiant, of course, was on The Sopranos. He did a number of acting gigs, too, but The Sopranos was a real highlight, he said, for him. And on my serious XM show, uh, he was talking nonstop. I, I could leave the room and let John just talk and talk and talk and uh, come back, and he'd still be talking and entertaining people.
0: You know, you know and, and to talk about uh, his uh, career in acting, also he did uh, some stand-up comedy too through the years as well. I remember reading through the trades. I never really had a chance to hear his material aside from the, the wrestling business, but that's another uh, interesting avenue that kind of worked in with his persona and personality as well.
2: Yeah, I think he was one of the first guys to do stand up, even before Mick Foley or Colt Cabana or some of the great guys like that.
0: Well, absolutely. And we're bringing Mike McCurdy into the conversation, Mike. uh didn't want to leave you behind into the mix here, Grizz. What do you got for uh, Mr. Lano?
1: Well, I'd like to <clears throat> touch back on Bruno um, for a minute. Just recently, the last past week or so, we had the HBO documentary on Andre the Giant, obviously another icon in wrestling. But if you look at Bruno's life story, not just wrestling, but before wrestling, there can, there's a documentary, there's a movie that can be made about Bruno's life. I was wondering maybe we could touch a little bit just on kind of some of his life before wrestling because the story of his life growing up is absolutely amazing.
2: You'd have to get his book, his book, which would be perhaps difficult to, to make. And somebody tried making it, like Bruno, I think that was. You know, somebody was going to do an Andre... Uh, paired uh, Bruno documentary and then it was going to be called I think just Like Bruno or Like San Martino. I don't know if that ever was completed but um, you know, the the war-torn thing in Italy, basically I'm synopsing here from memory and uh, his mom just really sacrificed everything during World War II. She grabbed Bruno, they got out of there. Uh, I think some other family members might have been uh, killed in the process but you know, a bombing and all of uh... the stuff with mussolini etc hitler was going on they managed to escape come to america and it's a pretty interesting story you know another thing um, well you know it just all i think went into character building for bruno and his compassion for other people all of the stuff that he went through and man was he devoted to his mother his family uh... had a bit of a falling out with david but that was you know something else on a sidebar but he still loved him talked about him uh, anytime we talked and uh, I know it's really got to be difficult for his wife Carol and the three kids all named I forget now the only thing I forget is why they all were uh, given names that started with D uh, David and Darren etc but um, yeah I, you know that would be interesting I, I would hope the general public would be interested in it because his whole life apart from wrestling is fascinating and awe-inspiring and, you know, stuff of, like, hero stuff.
1: One thing I didn't know, um, I've read his autobiography, but I didn't know this at the time, is we see Bruno, and he was just huge, so muscular, but he was, I think, 140-something pounds at one point. He was a scrawny guy and just devoted himself to to weightlifting and all that. (laughs)
2: But he purposely dropped all that weight, you know, whenever anyone would ask in the last 20-plus years. Uh, and that brings me to another little quickie insider thing. Uh, no, he purposely dropped all of that muscle uh, because he didn't want it to, impinging on his heart or any of that stuff. And, um, so he was so health-conscious. Uh, he had, you know, Dave Meltzer and others will recall talking to him as, as I had. He had, like, uh, knee or hip replacement surgery without any anesthesia, just topical, because he so abhorred drugs of any kind, uh, which if you think about that, I mean, who could go through that kind of pain? But he, you know, just meditate, get himself thinking about being someplace else, and he managed to survive that. And um, when he started dropping all the weight, actually, uh, he brought me in as uh, his interviewer. He had his then manager, Stu Levitin, hire me, and they flew me out to New York, and we filmed like eight DVDs, uh, most of which didn't make it out, but that was because uh, Bruno found out this guy was like trying to trademark his name and likeness behind his back, the Stu Levitin character, and Bruno... Had a, got a new attorney, Marty Lazaro, who quashed all that, but so we did make this DVD series and, uh, of like eight different DVDs, and he had me hired uh, as the guy interviewing him, and people like, you know, I had one of them, we did for 90 minutes he and Pedro Morales talking about their famous match at Shea Stadium, that Broadway match, Babyface versus Babyface, the first Shea Stadium match, another one we did uh, we called uh, Passing the Belt, so we had Bob Backlund, uh, Sean Stasek, Stan's son, Ivan Koloff, and Morales, and Bruno, all talking about being TriWF champion and what it meant. Another one with Dominic DeNucci, one of his best friends, if not his best friend as a wrestler, their travels to Japan and South America and Puerto Rico and all of that. And then finally, uh, well, there was a bunch of other ones, but the one that was most memorable, we did Bruno captaining a team of legends, Koloff and Backlund and Morales and... Davey O'Hannon and S.D. Jones and, of course, uh, Dominic DeNucci against uh, a team of newer people in wrestling to talk about the contrast things uh, in history. And uh, Raven, Scotty uh, Levy was the captain of that. And we had Missy Hyatt and Francine from ECW and uh, Chris Daniels, uh, So it was, uh, whoever I could get since I was booking these people and the SATs, and then Teddy Hart and Jack Evans. And the weirdest thing, the reason I even bring up any of this is uh, this was, gosh, at least 10, 11 years ago in New York, and uh, Teddy Hart and Jack Evans uh, in the middle of the interview do uh, back back, uh, moonsaults off a table in front of Bruno and Pedro and Koloff to try to impress them, and Bruno just gave it to him and said, You guys are insane. What are you doing that for? And you shouldn't be doing that in wrestling. And, uh, you know, you're going to hurt yourself just for a cheap pop. And, you know, that's not a real high spot. But it was just funny because although all the knowledge that Bruno still had of the business going on, he really could lead and shared that whole uh, discussion against all of these young kids who. Uh, you know, were the, the happening people in wrestling, particularly Chris Daniels and folks like that, and Court Bauer, who's the big MLW promoter in the Florida area. Uh, in fact, I think his TV show starts tonight on Sunshine Network, if you get direct TV. Uh, but anyway, so uh, that, that just, I don't know. I have so many great memories uh, of Bruno. It's, uh, it's hard to, to pick on any one of them, other than the fact that uh, we won't see his likes again in, in wrestling or life, period.
0: You know, Mike, I want to bring up one, though, or maybe even two here that really uh, stand have stood out uh, through the years and have uh, had a little bit more steam under them. As far as some of Bruno's nineteen seventies, mid seventies moments, uh, and even early eighties here, the one I want to talk about is the one that uh, uh, culminated in uh, you know Bruno. First, it started with Bruno getting hurt, was uh, the match with Stan Hansen, and the eventual uh, you know comeback by Bruno uh, after some rehabilitation. Uh, I mean this this was a major. It so wasn't that a
2: comeback. He was forced to do that it was a freak accident thing Stan Hansen was very apologetic he didn't mean to do it but legit broke Bruno's neck and to try to make this brief Bruno was originally the guy picked to face Muhammad Ali that was how that was supposed to go down but then uh, according to Bruno Vince Sr. ran out of money partners they couldn't put that together so Inoki and his people from New Japan his money backers were able to put that together and instead it switched to that match so fast-forwarding a, a bit later to the live thing at Shea Stadium where they were going to show that match from Japan closed circuit or on the big screen and then have live matches like Chuck Weppner against Andre, etc. But that wasn't making you know, the advance ticket sales, according to Bruno, and a worried Vince Sr., and this is all just Bruno's side. I don't have Vince Sr.'s side, but he said that that was not doing well monetarily at all for Shea, Shea Stadium and Vince Sr. was afraid they were going to lose their shirt so Bruno's in the hospital bed Vince Sr. first called him and then came in and, and was begging him to come do something to save that show uh, and Bruno's doctor said absolutely not, We he can't, he can't leave this bed, he's got a halo around his neck we don't want him moving, we don't want him doing any anything physical uh, but according to Bruno, Vince Sr. talked him into doing it and they uh, you know There was very little contact at the Shea thing, so Bruno came, saved the show. The tickets went nuts from then on when they said it would be a revenge match, Bruno against Stan Hansen, the guy who, quote-unquote, broke his neck. Uh, but again, it was just an accident, and Bruno never had any ill will towards Stan. In fact, they had the two of them on uh, by phone as guests, oh gosh, maybe eight, nine years ago on one of my radio shows. And it was great to hear them talking that out. Another guy that, uh, so Bruno liked and respected Stan. He liked Brody, which a lot of people may uh, be surprised at. Definitely really liked Bill Watts, who he thought was uh, a great, great mind in the business, you know, learning from when he came into the TriWF around 64, 65, his cowboy Bill Watts. And then he knew that he had gleaned a lot from Roy Shire, who Bruno respected as a, a booker, and from Eddie Graham in all his days in Atlanta, etc., and from Leroy McGurk in the Mid-South. Uh, so he was always gracious in putting over people that he really respected, but no heat with him and Stan Hansen over that accident.
0: What did he think uh, uh, his relationship was with, with the good man who, who succeeded him in this, his second reign? Uh, what was the relationship like with superstar Billy Graham with Bruno?
2: Um, he, I, I can't answer all of it because now some of it I forget. He liked him, uh, initially when he came in via Los Angeles and then the AWA, uh, when Vern sent him to Vince and, uh, you know, Vince Vern, excuse me, Bruno finally wanted the strap taken off him again. He was exhausted and that was 77. So we all knew in advance that was going to be, uh, going to, to, Billy Graham at that particular show. I think it was Baltimore, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. uh, was the venue um, but, you know, later on, some of the stuff that, uh, Billy did, Bruno said he, uh, wasn't happy with, uh, uh, you know, there was, you know, great respect there. And I think Billy has always said he really appreciated what Bruno did to really help him, uh, get over, uh, in the tri WF area, uh, where he became, you know, a legend, but, um, they didn't, you know, always have the greatest relationship, uh, so I'll just leave it at, at that. Uh, you know, Billy's been very vocal lately about Ronda Rousey. I'm sure you guys have seen that.
0: M- yeah, I've seen the posts up there. Yeah, he's uh, he's he's had a fire lit under him, and you you see that from time to time with the superstar. He puts That's a out these very. Country too, you yeah. know, He
2: should be able, whether you well, agree absolutely. with him or not, he absolutely. should be able to say whatever he wants to say, and and that shows that uh, Billy is on top of things too.
0: Well, yeah, and it's nice, you know, you're not always going to get the, uh, you know, the filtered perspective, you know, it's, it is cool when, you know, to have that, 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 that right to have your, your, your thoughts on it. I mean, yeah, I mean, you may not uh, get everybody to love Billy you, is, but, but the thing yeah, is Billy with Billy
2: is he's MMA fan. Don Fry lives right near him, and he's like the world's greatest Don Fry mark, so uh, he's got a lot of fondness for MMA, watches it all the time, you know, last time I talked to Billy, loves UFC and, and the other promotions.
0: Now, I'm going to mention uh, just one more to touch off on, on, on what I want to talk about with Bruno. Uh, yeah, it was around 1980, uh, oh, another famous angle involving Bruno was the, the classic, you know, teacher versus protege uh, with, with, with Larry Zabisco. And that was another thing that culminated in one of those big events at Shea Stadium. But uh, what, a, what a feud in the way that, you know, worked itself out from its early beginnings when the seeds were planted and in, into the inevitable main event at Shea with, with Bruno and Larry.
2: Yeah, the the way it was—that was brilliant booking. The way it was drawn out and drawn out, and people there knew all those years that the reason Larry was there is Bruno had uh, trained him and brought him along in the business for years and years. And then when that thing finally happened, it made big money. That was the last Shea Stadium spectacular, and uh, Andre Hogan was underneath that. It was a big spectacular card too.
0: Mike uh, McCurdy, uh, do you have any more uh, Bruno questions before we kind of transition into another area?
1: One thing I'd like to touch on for a second: um, you mentioned without Bruno, we would not have the WWE as we know it today. And if you look back, you know people are always asking your Mount Rushmore of pro wrestling, and people always bring up, you know, Hogan, Austin, The Rock, but Bruno is there was the WWE. He was the backbone. But what made Bruno so iconic? Because unfortunately, today's fans don't really know much about him. But in the 60s, 70s, he was, like I said, he was iconic. But what made Bruno such the iconic figure?
2: Um, well, it's easily, well, not so easily some, but I shot everywhere. in Madison Square Garden, Chicago Amphitheater, Tokyo's uh, Curaculum Hall and stuff. But the feeling down my spine when Bruno would come out, he didn't need any entrance fireworks, entrance music, not even a ring robe. He just came out, in, like a, Mike Tyson would later, in boots and his world championship belt, and the place went out of their minds. It was so deafening. Every, wherever I was, whatever the venue was uh, for Boston Garden or Philly Spectrum, or of course, Madison Square Garden, where it was the loudest uh, for Bruno. And the interviews he did where he just seemed like you know regular human, human being people could relate to, Uh, To promote these things, Uh, no one else was doing that. They weren't giving, uh, or or they just weren't giving them on that level, that first-class, five-star level of interviews that Bruno uh, would give, where he came across as a real human being with the heart and soul, and uh, you know could relate uh, to almost everybody. Every race and creed loved Bruno. You know, when I was going there, you would see Greek people and Puerto Rican people, and Hispanic people of other persuasions, uh, Dominican people, and, of course, Italians and and regular, uh, no matter what, they just uh, could relate and and took him to heart. And uh, the the testament that he basically was at promotion from 63 on, uh, you know, well after the Larry Zabisco thing when he had to come back um, th- just tells you what, what he was. you know certainly those names we don't want to belittle uh, Austin or Rock or, or any of the folks that have been huge, Cena, but they would probably agree with that that Bruno really made that that company.
1: One last thing I'm just going to ask outside of wrestling, we you not know, what are some of your like fondest memories of just your friend Bruno San Martino?
2: Um, at the last uh, Russell Kahn thing in Los Angeles, I think it was 2012, he got a big suite. I just had a tiny room at that Weston, LAX Weston, but he had a big suite and let me have one of the other rooms. But we would go with another one of his best friends, Chris Cruz, you remember as a NWA WCW announcer, uh, who I've been trying to find out, uh, and I'll disseminate the funeral arrangements or the service, whatever is. I don't know if it's going to be private, just a family. We don't know yet. It's been only since Wednesday the 18th. But um, w- the three of us would go to, there was an upper area where we could just watch TV and, and kibitz and talk about world events. And uh, you know, that was just the, and we did that in other places, other cities around the U.S., uh, just spending, like, time and not talking about wrestling. Um, Oh, gosh. Uh, Going for Philly cheesesteaks. You know, I I never had one before. This was in the 70s with Bruno uh, and getting a Pat's. I think it was Pat's hoagie Um, cheesesteak. My Japanese magazine editor, Fumi uh, Saito, who uh, Medusa had uh, credited in her WWE Hall of Fame speech. Anyway, he had uh, a whole tour of Japanese fans that wanted to meet Bruno. And he organized this big tour from Japan to Pittsburgh and then flew me in to do the translating since I speak Japanese, but, you know, run everything and, and get Bruno's scheduled, get him there. And, and Bruno loved talking to him again. He was just talking to him as he would to any big celebrity. He, uh, spent quality time with each person. Um, oh gosh, um, Seeing him in the locker room with different people, like Blassie trying to pull ribs on him, and Bruno would have none of it. Uh, seeing the friendship he had with uh, John Tolis, uh, you know, before he left uh, Los Angeles, that was a, a big story. He uh, had it out with Mike LaBelle, my big boss. there, our promoter in the uh, whole Southern California area. Basically, he came in and did the Battle royal. And then they did an injury angle with Blassie against Killer Kowalski, Freddie Blassie, the beloved babyface. So they brought in Bruno, and he drew maybe 80,000, 75% uh, capacity of the Olympic Auditorium. And in the back, when it was over, he was so used to storytelling and, and things progressing and going from point A to Z properly. He said to Mike LaBelle, hey, uh, I know we, uh, we we did a hell of a match, you know, like 45 minutes draw, Broadway. Uh, Will do great, even better, and sell a place out in two weeks. And Mike LaBelle said, "Oh, I've already lost interest. I'm putting Tolis with Kowalski and you with the Sheik on that show in two weeks." And Bruno just he quit, and he really had words, uh, major words, with Mike LaBelle. You know, who was at the cash box in the the business office at the front where you know fans bought their tickets. He wasn't even watching the matches. And you know, I know uh, those in our L.A. office. Weren't happy with that uh, assessment, but that's what Bruno said from his side. Is he didn't feel Mike LaBelle studied or knew anything about wrestling, and he goes, "What promoter doesn't watch his main event and and take notes and and do all of that as a, a, a studious person?" I think indie promoters could learn from what Bruno said there. So he quit. That was really memorable, not not in a super powerful, a positive way, but. Bruno standing up for what he felt was right, and uh, that's just one of the many, many great characteristics of Bruno. He stood up for stuff that was right, he never would be silenced, and uh, just had a huge heart and cared for other people. Uh, so these are great qualities. You know, Take the wrestler away from that equation, and Bruno is a superstar as a human being on all those levels and more.
0: We're going to talk now just a little bit about uh, Johnny Johnny Valiant here that we didn't get a chance to touch on, Mister uh, Mister Leno. Mr. I want to hear a little bit about this uh, this connection. I I have heard about this, but it, apparently that uh, there was this Vince McMahon before WWF or, or try WWF or there was a connection with oh, right, Vince right. McMahon senior. Yeah, 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 well, yeah. Well, was this out in and Virginia?
2: Johnny Johnny would say the reason Vince senior. He had a little bit of heat, according to this Johnny, and I know I'm just presenting one side, but that was the side I was told. I don't have the other side, but Johnny said that that Vince would get upset with him because he was the only one who wouldn't defer to him because they, according to Johnny, went to military school together, and Johnny would backtalk at him when, uh, you know, probably I'm guessing on Vince's side, this is uh, from about 85 on, 86, et cetera, uh, I'm guessing... You know, on that side, Vince would say, well, gee, I was throwing him a bone, giving him a payday uh, when he was managing for us, but, you know, it was not at a Fred Blassie, Albano level of, of speaking as a manager. And maybe that wasn't the greatest, uh, uh, I guess, job description for, for Johnny. Uh, he may not have been the world's greatest manager, although he did, you know, come in with Hogan, uh, established him uh, in the earliest AWA Hogan days but uh so that that was where that stuff was going on and uh, everybody was always respectful to vince mcmahon uh this is the son jr uh and uh, johnny would would sometimes not be and would get into fixes or you know other things that displeased uh vince as it, it had earlier with bruno and uh, So eventually he was dropped from the company, and uh, he didn't know why. He couldn't figure out uh, those things. But um, he he was a super funny guy, and you know, a a rib guy, and uh, that means practical jokes, etc.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, what did you remember uh, just from any personal memories of, of being around, around Johnny then uh, you talked a little bit about it. he's known for the ribs but anything that you can remember personally like, like, kind of like what we mentioned with Bruno but this time with, with, with Johnny from, from your personal side
2: um, And then I'm going to apologize I'm going to have to bid ado. I've got to go to the, the doctors I've got some uh, uh, post-op surgery stuff um, Well, Johnny and Jimmy When they were together, you know, uh, you would take Johnny away from Jimmy and uh, he could be, you know, serious and thoughtful. Uh, But you put the two of them together and uh, in their heyday, you were talking 73, 74, 75, early 75, I think prior to June before they left. And uh, they were major ladies' men. And this was before Me Too. And all of that movement, uh, I had never <laughs> seen guys in wrestling or not in wrestling, maybe the blackjacks on a secondary uh, level, but nowhere near the valiance uh, ability uh, with female fans and rats, at whatever we want to call them, groupies. Uh, they were just insane. i talked to Jimmy about this too, interviewed him. Uh, on various shows and uh, they were just uh, amazing but they did it with a twinkle in their eye they meant no harm they were never disrespectful or well for the times they weren't they, they certainly would be now <laughs> they might be thrown in the clink but um oh gosh when we would be at the uh, conventions or stuff on the the east coast um the, the weekend of champions thing in new york every year usually johnny was there uh he, he would go around and play little practical jokes on various people like Mick Foley uh even Sean Waltman who was there you know people didn't really know who he was Chris Candido um, Rick Rude uh, uh you know he just loved the practical joke and uh just was kind of a blast to be around again not always politically correct in the 2018 2017 scheme of things but um, you know, he's just a, a, sort of a, a pretty funny guy. Whereas I can't think of anything like that um, regarding Paul Jones. If you were to ask, um, I, I, don't, I I think he was always like respectful of his wife, and and you know was not at that kind of level. You know, some guys are high voltage personalities like John Valiant, and then others are uh, more studious like Paul Jones and uh, uh, and and then you got the the pinnacle, which is Bruno, in terms of being serious and respectful of everyone, everyone. Uh, but uh, John was a character, and they, the mold is broken with him too.
0: Oh, most most definitely. And uh, seeing that our, our time is getting a bit short here, uh, Mister Leno, I want to bring Mike McCurdy back in to ask uh, just a question or two before you go. So I see that you have an appointment coming up. But Mike, uh, I'll bring you back into the conversation here as we wrap up with uh, Doctor Leno.
1: You know, I'm going to have to admit without the advent of YouTube, I would not know much about um, Johnny Valiant's career beforehand. Cause like you, Glenn, you know, I'm 45. I remember Lusher's Johnny V. I remember him as the manager. And as Mike said, he brought in with, he was with Hulk Hogan. But um, <clears throat> his managing career, I mean, like I said, that's a little bit about all I know about, but you know, how did that come about? Was this just cause, you know, he wasn't able to wrestle anymore and they just want to do, Have something for me. It was a chance to give somebody else a rub because I just never know know much about lesser Johnny Valiant. Well, um,
2: as Bobby Heenan said, neither of them were, uh, and I don't mean to be disrespectful because uh, Johnny had many other attributes and skills. You know, they weren't the they weren't like Billy Robinson or Carl Gotch, Let's put it that way. I'm I'm being uh, judicious here. You know, Bobby Heenan uh... Who we all respect and love uh... you know, just said they weren't the world's greatest wrestlers but they were so colorful and paired with albano um, it's a shame people can't see that they hopefully they can put that on their network you can see all of that stuff and maybe some of those main events with bruno and chief um, just the color and and flash and the it factor they really had during that period and you know it's like you only hit lightning once I think later on, um, he'd already wrestled for a long, long time. I think since like sixty-seven, sixty-eight, perhaps uh, sixty-nine, is John L. Sullivan in the Pittsburgh area where he started and where he sadly was run over uh, when he went back home. Um, but um, I, I think it was just a bone being thrown to him. He really, uh, you know, was a little bit too old, long in the tooth to be a wrestler. So they gave him the managerial thing, which he'd already been doing in the AWA, et cetera, anyway. Uh, at this particular period of time and uh, uh, it just maybe wasn't uh, it just wasn't working out so eventually he was let go from that after a couple of years but he had you know a good X amount of years doing that but I urge people that isn't the Johnny Valiant you really should see you really should see him in his days with Jimmy just him and Jimmy and Albano uh, Captain Lou and the Valiants too that was one of their closing taglines to their promos I mean Johnny could give some great promos the three of them and you may not think, oh, gee, how can Jimmy and John give promos like that? Well, look at their seventy-four, seventy-five work, and you'll you'll be saying the same thing.
0: Well, it looks like the time is uh, getting short on 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 wrestling memories uh, this week. Uh, Doctor Mike Lano, thank you so very much to uh, stop by, take some time out of your schedule to help us remember uh, three truly uh, unique and very talented and legendary professional wrestlers in the form of number one Paul Jones, uh, J- luscious Johnny Valiant, and of course the living legend. Well, now he's left us, Mr. Bruno Sammartino. Mike, your insight is always welcome here on the program. And thank you so much. I mean, it just brightens up our day to remember the good things about these uh, three wonderful competitors.
2: They were all three great, great, great people. And it was a really kind of a horrific X amount of days losing all three of them in succession. Uh, Barbara Bush, it's been not the greatest, but let's remember the positives about all three. Uh, they all were... The mold was broken on all three of those. I know that's kind of trite, and I've already said that, but uh, all three were so unique Paul Jones, Johnny Valiant, and, uh, and Bruno. There's just no one like any of them.
0: No, not at all. And uh, again, I want to thank also down there in the deep uh, part of Texas in his mobile uh, studio today, the Grizzle Vet, Mike McCurdy. Thank you so much, Mike, for uh, being a part of the Wrestling Memories uh, program this week as well.
1: Always a pleasure, man. I enjoy coming on and do the show. So. As I've been saying before, I'm going to be on here more often. People are going to get tired of hearing me
0: soon. A promise, a threat, whatever it may be, it's always good to have the Grizzled Vet on board with Wrestling Memories. For the Grizzle Vet, Mike McCurdy and Dr. Mike Leno. I'm Glenn Broggett. So long for now. You've been listening to Wrestling Memories.